ZipRecruiters has come on board as a proud sponsor of Without Warning Podcast. Use code WOWWOW and search for jobs anytime, anywhere. I know many of my listeners have said they wanted to become a private investigator or researcher. If you're looking, use ZipRecruiters code word WOW. Let's support the sponsors that support Without Warning. The Lauren Agee case was hastily closed by authorities, but many questions remain. Come behind the curtain with private investigator Sheila Waisaki as she uncovers the truth about what happened to Lauren. This is Without Warning. Warning. The following episode contains details about sexual violence and elements that are graphic in nature. On the last episode, you got a front row seat to Sherry Smith and Chris Yarchuk meeting for the first time. Chris Yarchuk was a fantastic witness on what took place that weekend. He was actually there. Remember that. He was there. That's going to be important in this episode. This episode is on the Court of Appeals ruling and how we got there. So once again, I'm giving you a front row seat on what actually happens in an investigation to the families of victims and the process they have to go through. The first clip you're going to hear is Dennis Ferrier from Fox 17 News out of Nashville. Dennis Ferrier is the finest investigative reporter in Tennessee. Many times throughout this podcast, you've heard Sheriff Patrick Gray of DeKalb County in Tennessee complain about Dennis Ferrier, meaning Dennis has done his job asking the questions that need to be asked. I'm starting the podcast with a clip from Fox 17 News, so you can keep that in mind while you're listening to the judge make the ruling on Hannah Palmer's summary judgment motion. Sometimes knowing the end helps with the story. Oh, and this judge, he can't stand me. Prior to this hearing, he told the courtroom, I probably could find cheating husbands. He also told the courtroom, in order to be a PI, you just needed to take a simple test. As a woman, I experienced this a lot as an investigator. I don't take it personal in the South, in a Tennessee courtroom, that a judge doesn't feel like I can do my job. Lauren Agee's family felt they got a raw deal in court in Putnam County. They felt the judge was against them. We don't know about that, but tonight we know the judge was wrong and the Court of Appeals turned his ruling upside down. Plaintiff does not have enough evidence. But her entire case was thrown out by a judge from that area, Circuit Court Judge Jonathan Young. He called all of the witnesses and testimony ridiculous. The court is extremely disappointed with the quality of testimony and the affidavits provided by the plaintiff in this matter. At best, they did not know what they were talking about, continued to make statements and accusations that they were utterly unqualified to make and seemed to be just pulled out of the thin air. While the remaining experts Accusations may make for an exciting news broadcast or conspiracy theory. They have no place in a court of law. He just seemed to be just so much on their side and protective of them, and, and I don't understand that. Because I think a judge, 
He should rise above the politics of his community. And sure enough, when the Lauren Agee case went to appeal, it was the high court in Nashville that tore apart Judge Young's rulings. Abuse of discretion, applying incorrect legal standard, reaching illogical or unreasonable decision, clearly erroneous assessment of the evidence. The court ruled the Smiths have a clear legal right to sue for wrongful death. He threw all the evidence out, so he made sure Sherry didn't have a case. It seems to me, once again, that Sherry is the victim of politics, that once again, it's more important to get votes than it is to follow the law and give a ruling based on the law. And so now Sherry Smith is finally free to pursue the jury trial she has always wanted, not for money, not to win, just to find out what really happened. We're. We're going to find out what happened to Lauren. I have faith that we're going to have, we're going to find out what happened to my baby. So now it goes back to preparing for trial. Remember, all of the defendants in the case have taken the fifth. They're not talking about anything that happened. I'm Dennis Ferrier, Fox 17 News. Now let's listen to the judge do his job. This is a difficult case anytime that I parent loses a child, it's a difficult case. How we got here today, um, I think I stated earlier, is that the uh, court granted the plaintiff a continuance under pursuant to Rule 5607 uh, to allow them to supplement the affidavits of Ms. Wasaki. At that hearing, the court found that Ms. Wasaki was only an expert in private investigation and not into uh, the other things that she tried to delve into. I will remind everyone that's in the courtroom that this ruling is solely rendered in the case of Hannah Palmer and not the remaining defendants who are also still parties out there. Uh, so any reference that I make to a defendant or the defendant or whatever is only referring to Hannah Palmer. Uh, the first thing, I guess, the court denies the defendant's motion to dismiss for failure to join an indispensable party at this time. Um, I haven't heard any proof that anything other than he was there. Uh, you can renew that motion if at some point uh, it becomes necessary, but right now I don't think there's any proof in the record that he was indispensable. We have several things going on today uh, in this case. The main thing is, is a motion for summary judgment. Uh, we also have several motions that the defendants has filed to strike various affidavits. Um, as to the motions to strike affidavits, the court must decide if the affidavits meet the requirements of Tennessee Rules of Civil Procedure 56.06. That rule states that affidavits must be made to the affidavit's affiant's uh, personal knowledge. The affiant's statement must otherwise be admissible to evidence. And three, the affiant is competent to testify regarding the substance of the affidavit. Court will basically focus on the third part of that is the affiant is competent to testify regarding the substance of the affidavit. Uh, there are some lay witnesses, and I'll deal with those later. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that. As the lawyers know, but maybe many of you um, 
in the audience who do not practice in this area do not know, but the summary judgment standard was just um, revised in Tennessee, I guess is a better word, under the Rye versus Women's Care Center of Memphis. Um, and basically, uh, Rule 56.04 states that uh, summary judgment is appropriate when the pleadings, depositions, answers to interrogatories, and admissions on file, together with the affidavits, if any, show that there is no genuine issue as to any material fact that the moving party is entitled to a judgment as a matter of law. The Rye decision basically changed one important element in the summary judgment standard, and it holds that granting a summary judgment is proper if the defendant may satisfy its burden of production either by one, affirmatively negating an essential element of the plaintiff's claim, or two, by demonstrating that the plaintiff's evidence at the summary judgment stage is insufficient to establish the non-moving party's claim or defense. The key phrase is at the summary judgment stage. Previously, under the old Hannon decision, it was at trial. So while in the past it may have been enough for a non-moving party to suggest that the court, judge, we will produce this at trial, or this is what will be produced at trial, under the new standard is, this is the proof we have today at the summary judgment standard. Many attorneys in this court, in the federal courts, call it by a rather crude name uh, that the court does not really appreciate, but maybe some of the audience will We'll get it. It's basically the put up or shut up rule. You either put your proof on the table today or you don't get tomorrow. Um, as to, uh, the, I guess, less uh, argument parts of the uh, defendant's motion for summary judgment, number one, personal jurisdiction. The court's denying that motion. The court finds there are sufficient facts to establish personal jurisdiction over the defendant. Um, the plaintiff alleged that the defendant was present in DeKalb County when this incident occurred, and I think that's enough to establish personal jurisdiction. Same with number two, venue is denied. The court finds that there are sufficient facts to establish personal venue over the defendant. The plaintiff alleges that all these facts and circumstances took place in DeKalb County, Tennessee, and the defendant has produced no evidence to the contrary. The contested portion of the um, defendant's motion is paragraphs three through eight, um, and they are so related that the court will combine them together, and also I'm going to combine them with the motions to strike the plaintiff's affidavits pursuant to rule 701 and 702 of the rules of evidence. The plaintiff's basic theory is that Miss uh, Agee's death was not accidental, but intentional. And that this was caused by the defendant, either intentionally or I think negligently. And then there's a claim for an intentional motion of um, intentional infliction of emotional distress. Uh, and then they further claim that as a result of these actions, harm was caused to the plaintiff for which she seeks to recover damages. 
to try to prove these theories are more probable than not. They are relying on experts who submitted affidavits in this matter, namely Mr. Liker, Ms. Wasaki, Dr. Gazeki, Mr. Hodges, Mr. Yarchuk, and Mr. Mellison, and then we had the late filed affidavit, I assume, of Mr. Brown. As I said, this case is a little different. Normally in summary judgment motions, each side will file their statement of undisputed facts supported by the affidavits, and court will look at those facts as court did in the previous case that was before it, and will render a verdict based on the law submitted to make a decision. However, in this case, it's a little different as the defendants also filed the motions to strike the plaintiff's experts pursuant to rules 702 and 703 and other various rules of Tennessee evidence. The court must now take the additional step to look behind those affidavits submitted to see if the affidavits actually states what's actually states the affidavit state actually complains contains information that complies to the rules of evidence. This is a broader examination than what I normally do, and I'll do my best to speak to each one of the affidavits individually before we go forward. So those are the rules that I must apply to this case. First, the court's gonna take up the uh, defendant's motion to strike the affidavit of Sherry Smith court denies that motion. The court believes that the pleadings are broad enough to allow her testimony as to the damages. Uh, Ms. Smith is clearly a lay witness and the majority of her uh, affidavits relied upon uh, those statements. In fact, her personal knowledge or her damages. Therefore, the court finds proper that testimony. However, any reference to the cause of death or the alleged cover-up in paragraphs three and five and the reference to an alleged homicide in paragraph 13 must be stricken. While the court is sympathetic to the mother, as I stated before, and her beliefs, these conclusions require expert knowledge that she does not possess and must be stricken for violating rules 702 and 703. Next, I'll discuss the evidence of the expert opinions presented by the plaintiff. I'll first look at the uh, declaration of Miss Amy Griffiths. Guzecki, Dr. Guzecki is the only expert, uh, medical expert that the plaintiff has. To this court, she seems vastly qualified in forensic medicine and currently was working as a medical examiner in Mississippi. Well, I guess maybe now she's in Dallas. She's a contract examiner in Mississippi. <clears throat> the defendant objects to Dr. Gazeski's opinions by saying, one, that they're not relevant, two, even if they are relevant, they're more probative, more prejudicial than probative, and three, that her opinions violate Rule 703 because she examined the photographs and not the body itself. In reviewing her conclusions or her statements in paragraph three, um, she states that in her expert opinions, um, 
Lauren's throat shows some areas of hemorrhage as demonstrated in the autopsy photos. While Lauren's throat was documented through the photos, during the autopsy, the hemorrhages were not noted in the autopsy report. B, the hemorrhaging in Lauren Agee's throat are consistent with a significant fall or pressure to the neck as in strangulation. C, Lauren Agee's back shows tremendous amount of hemorrhaging indicated that she received blunt force trauma to her back while she was still alive. D, the hemorrhage in Lauren Agee's back represents blunt force trauma to the back consistent with a significant fall or inflicted trauma. That was basically all that her report contained. And then she goes on to her conclusion, further investigation and, outs and outside of the medical exam is needed to determine matter of death as other than accident. It's my opinion that the plaintiff is trying to read too much into Dr. Brzezinski's testimony. My reading of her medical opinion is that she finds all of the injuries are consistent with a significant fall or that they could be caused by some other causes, by strangulation. However, she could not render a medical opinion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty of anything other than accidental without further investigation. The plaintiff's conclusion that she could not determine the death was accidental is clearly in contrast with her statement. However, saving that, the court finds that her testimony is clearly relevant and probative. Prejudicial value is minimal, as her conclusion clearly supports the um, findings of the medical examiner in this case. The court has nothing in this record to show that an independent medical examiner cannot review autopsy photos to make medical determinations to a reasonable degree of medical certainty. Therefore, the motion to strike Ms. Grzetsky's or Dr. Grzetsky's affidavit is denied. However, the court is also mindful, as I stated earlier, that she cannot determine the cause of death of anything other than accidental at the time of her report. Daily Harvest is a sponsor of Without Warning. My home is like an Airbnb. I have people from all over the country come stay with me while we work on cases. Sometimes I'll have one, sometimes I have 15 people at my house. The hardest thing is to keep nutritional meals on hand. With Daily Harvest, I have it in my freezer. All of Daily Harvest ingredients are carefully sourced for maximum nourishment and flavor. You can actually see all of the ingredients when you open the cup. Daily Harvest is the easiest, most delicious way to load up on fruits and vegetables. I just go into my freezer, pull out a cup, take off the top, put almond milk in, blend it, and everybody has a nutritional lunch. And I didn't have to cook. Go to daily-harvest.com and enter promo code WOW to get three cups free in your first box. That's daily-harvest.com and enter code WOW, W-O-W. Third Love is a proud sponsor of Without Warning Podcast. No one listening to this podcast is excited about bra shopping. It is not on the to-do list. It is on the I don't want to do list. 
third love has come up with a convenient way to skip the trip. Find your fit with third love's online fit finder. Order and try on at home. No more awkward fitting room experiences. All you have to do is go to the fit finder quiz, answer a few simple questions to find your perfect fit in 60 seconds. It's actually fun and takes less than a minute to complete. After you listen to the podcast, go online and fill it out. One minute, that's all it's going to take. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they are offering, without warning podcast listeners, 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash warning now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. My personal recommendation, buy three. Again, go to thirdlove.com slash warning for your 15% off today. Next, the court will examine the affidavit of Mr. Liker. Mr. Liker's statement has attached to it a copy of a curriculum vitae, or CV as we call in court. It's basically like a resume, uh, provides one's experience and skills. Mr. Liker has abundant law enforcement experience and training. He's perhaps one of the most qualified law enforcement officers to testify in this court. No offense to the present law enforcement officers in this court, um, but I don't think any of them has testified before me. Uh, however, in examining his CV, uh, he has absolutely no medical education, medical degree, or any other formal education in medical science. He has performed over 400 homicide investigations. However, his affidavit is silent as to whether or not he's performed or even attended an autopsy. As stated previously, this court can only rule what's before it. Therefore, the court does find that Mr. Liker is an expert in police procedures, but can find that, that does find that he has no medical experience and thus cannot give an opinion to which <coughs> medical experience or qualifications would require. And in looking at that, and looking at Mr. Liker's affidavit, the court thinks of the question, what is the role of police officers? Well, if you look on the side of the car, it says to protect and serve, but what is the actual job description of police officers? And that is to go out and gather evidence. They go out, they find things, and they do that. Well... They present these, like I said, in a criminal case, they will present a weapon. They will present a knife. They will present blood stains. They will prevent all of that. Then what will happen? They will turn them over to an expert who will say, is this the weapon, or ask them the question, is this the weapon that was used in this homicide? The ballistics expert will go in and look at the bullet that they recovered and they will match it up to the gun and then they will say, well, to some certainty, yes, this is the gun that was used to kill a person. That's the role of the police officer. They go out and they collect the evidence. However, in paragraphs 9 and 12 of his affidavit, Mr. Liker does more than collect the evidence. 
In nine, he states, there was no water found in her lungs. That's a statement of fact. I don't know that that's a problem, more or less. It's just, that's what it is. Um, then he goes on to B, there are injuries to Lauren's body that indicate that she was involved in a struggle prior to her death that are not consistent with a fall. This is where the court has problems. Subparagraph little i, there are symmetrical injuries to Lauren's back. Again, that's a fact. The problem is these symmetrical remarks are consistent with a body being dragged. Mr. Liker doesn't have that experience. He doesn't have any experience, I don't know. Um, he, he's not one of the people that, that train up at the body farm up at Knoxville that look at decomposing bodies or they drag them around or they do that to see what the marks are. No offense to Mr. Liker, but he's a police officer. So the court strikes the um, 9B little I second sentence. These symmetrical marks are consistent with the body being dragged. Paragraph 2. Lauren's clothes and injuries are inconsistent with a fall. Lauren's injuries do not include scrapes on the unportion of her body. The first paragraph, I don't know that he can say that. Your own medical examiner, the plaintiff's own medical examiner, says that her injuries are consistent with a great fall. So now he's becoming a medical examiner who's questioning the plaintiff's own medical examiner. He could say in paragraph two, Lauren's injuries do not include scrapes on the unportioned portions, uncovered portions of her body, period. I think that's all he can say. Then it would be turned over to the expert who would say that would be as would be expected if a person had fallen through brush present on the hillside. Lauren's neck shows sign of hemorrhaging. Again, that's a fact consistent of being held down by the throat. I don't know that he can say that. The medical's report did not note the hemorrhaging. That's, that's again a true fact. The bruising on Lauren's body is not consistent with a fall. Again, that's in direct contrast with the medical examiner's own report. Mr. Um, Liker does not have that experience and therefore Everything in 9B that I talked about must be stricken from the record. And then number 10 is basically his conclusory statement that this is a homicide. Well, what is he basing that on is that there was no law that he could base it on is that there was no water in her lungs and that there are symmetrical injuries on her back. I don't think he is capable of, of coming to that conclusion based on those facts. 12, he goes on and talks about, um, again, I think he's capable of saying there was symmetrical scraping on her back. There was no water found in her, there was no water found in her lungs. There was no indication that she drowned. The problem with that statement is Thus, Lauren was dead before she entered the water. 
I think the only person that can render a medical opinion as to time of death or, or that is not a law enforcement officer. He has all this skills and, and, and problems, but he's not a medical examiner. We look at paragraph 13. In that paragraph, he makes the conclusory statement that their statements and quick arrival indicate prior knowledge on their part as placement of Lauren's body. In my experience, the likelihood that the defendants Chris Stout and Aaron Lilly would arrive by chance at the location of the body at the exact moment it was found by a third party is almost zero. The court finds it strange that Mr. Liker and Miss Wazaki, that we'll talk about in a minute, basically have the same exact same opinion of this of this fact. They don't uh, present any proof um, of how they come to the fact that they would arrive there and it's almost zero. Um, secondly, it's dealing with Mr. Stout and Mr. Lilly, and we're here on Miss Palmer. But to quantify a percentage of, of about zero is basically a hunch, um, pseudoscience. However, uh, so the court strikes that part of the, of the thing. However, I don't, again, don't think it goes to prove that Miss Palmer did anything, um, but it does violate rule 702, 703, and also at least the first four prongs of the McDaniel test is because there is no uh, process that went went through. Paragraphs 19 and 20, um, or 19 through 22, looks like they go after the medical examination. I will go back. I think that he, uh, 16 through Yes, 19. He does uh, argue uh, that the uh, sheriff's department was negligent or deficient, I guess is a better word, in their examination of the scene. Um, I do feel he is qualified to say that. Uh, he has, as I said, I think worked over 40 or 400 homicide investigations. Um, however, the problem is, when we look at the ultimate answer, um, he produces no proof of anything that ties Miss Palmer to the thing other than the police officers could have done more. I guess, further all, they could have done less. Uh, paragraphs 19 through 22, uh, well, I guess actually 20, um, the medical examiner omitted key information that is clearly visible in the autopsy photographs. Well, again, he's a police officer. He doesn't know what a medical examiner should or should not have included in an autopsy. Therefore, strikes 20, 21, 22. I do point out in 22 uh, that he goes so far as saying the alcohol rate listed in the medical report does not mention the medically recognized potential for fermentation of alcohol post-death. 
It seems funny that a police officer is saying that a doctor did not include a medically recognized potential when he's not a doctor himself. Um, therefore, um, must strike 20, 21, and 22. Paragraphs 23 and 20, 23 through 28 are basically a rehashing of Ms. Wasaki's uh, report that we'll deal with uh, about the interview of Ms. Palmer. But he does bring up the Fifth Amendment issues, which we will talk about it in the beginning too. Uh, in the alternative, uh, this court could strike the entire affidavit of Mr. Liker because it did not comply with the order dated February 24, 2017, because Ms. Wasaki uh, did not state that she relied on his findings. They were added later. However, the court will allow the portions that I did not strike into, the into evidence at this point for the purposes of, of this motion. Next, we'll deal with the affidavit of Ms. Wasaki. The court previously held that Ms. Wasaki was not an expert in either forensic science, accident reconstruction, or formal law enforcement procedures. And again, the court did find that she was an expert in private investigation. On the next episode, you will hear the rest of the courtroom ruling. Like many listeners, I too have questions on the law and some of the rulings that have taken place. So I've asked an attorney to come on and answer some of my questions. If you have questions, email me at questions at SheilaWysocki.com. Thank you for listening and also for being proactive and writing Governor Bill Lee on Lauren Agee's case. Tennessee can do better. A special thanks to Dennis Barrier for always fighting for the victims and the victims' families, and Fox 17 News for allowing me to use audio. Lauren's family gives their full permission for any and all details to be shared in hope that the truth will come out. If you know anything at all, call 1-888-599-0008 or email tips at SheilaWysocki.com.